Good morning. Uh, for those of you who might not know me, my name is Brett. I am not one of the pastors here, but uh, when the pastors are out of town, I get the privilege of preaching. Uh, so I'm very thankful for that. It's such a joy to be able to deliver God's word to his church. Uh, I love you guys. I see a lot of you in GCM and we talk often. Um, so it really is a joy for me this morning. Uh, I feel so unworthy to be up here. I'm a, I'm a wrecked sinner, um, but uh, would you join with me in asking God's help? Our God, you are good and holy and righteous. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And when we consider your greatness, when we consider your perfection, when we consider just how good you are to us, we are left just amazed at how sinful we can be. Uh, So I ask, Spirit, that you would fill me this morning. I ask that you would use me as a vessel to proclaim your word. And I ask that you would help us to be receptive to it, to be good hearers of your word, so that we would be obedient as your children. You are good, and we ask all of this in Jesus. Amen. So we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and it might come as a surprise to you to see that we're back on prayer. If you remember just a few weeks ago, in the middle of chapter 6, Jesus begins to teach on prayer, and in fact, he gives us what is known as the Lord's Prayer, probably the most famous prayer in the world, in the history of the world. So when we turn to Matthew 7, Dennis gave us an excellent sermon last week about judging and what that looks like. So then Jesus turns and he immediately gives us some punches to the face almost, telling us what we need to do that mark us as citizens of his kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at today. What does it mean to pray? What is prayer? And why should we do it? Now the history of prayer in the United States is interesting to say the least. Recently, as you may know, prayer has come under attack in public life. There's been several cases in the last 15, 20 years in the Supreme Court, uh, different rulings on it. But most recently, the National Day of Prayer, which is a presidential proclamation, came under attack and was ruled as unconstitutional in 2010. This judge that ruled it unconstitutional said that this National Day of Prayer was a violation of the First Amendment, and specifically the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which basically says that the government cannot set up or establish any national religion. However, this ruling was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2011 because they argued that the National Day of Prayer was not not mandatory, but was voluntary and didn't specify any specific God. So I think we can use this National Day of Prayer as a good test case, and we'll see that religion in general, and especially prayer, characterizes something of what it means to be an American citizen. Now, if we look back at the founding of the United States, it's easy to see that not every founder was a Christian. In fact, some were hostile to Christianity. But, nevertheless, they saw the significance of Christianity in forming what they called a more perfect union and having a good, healthy, civic society. They reasoned that if this new nation was going to survive and if it was going to thrive, that the people needed to be praying. But this National Day of Prayer even predates the founding of the United States. In fact, George Washington, before he was President Washington, was just General Washington, the leader of the Continental Army. And he would regularly call his troops to set aside days to get on their knees and pray to God to ask them to help. But once Washington became president, he issued the first proclamation for a National Day of Prayer on October 3, 1789. It's about 225 years ago last month. And in this proclamation, he asked the citizens of this new nation to get on their knees and, quote, most humbly offer our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations. Washington saw the need for God's grace and blessing upon the new nation if it was going to survive, that they needed God's help. 
Now, since this first proclamation in 1789 from George Washington, every president except Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson has issued a national day of prayer. And even Jefferson, as some of you might know, was hostile to Christianity, didn't identify as a Christian. But it's interesting. In his second inaugural address, he said this. He called the citizens to join with me in supplications or prayers that God will enlighten our minds of his servants, guide our counsels, and prosper our measures. Even one who saw no value in praying recognized that the American people were to be a praying people. Now, I was even unaware of this until I was doing some research for the sermon, but there's still a National Day of Prayer today. It's May 1st this past year, if you didn't know, and in case you want to go ahead and mark it on your calendars for next year, it's May 7th. From these National Days of Prayer and from other political speeches, we see that there's something we can learn about the United States, and it's this. It's always had a unique place in American public life. Now, although in a loose way, we can say prayer says something about American identity. The fact that the leaders of the United States have always asked the citizens to pray shows that in some broad sense, prayer belongs in American public life. Now, we already talked about the challenges just to this national day of prayer, so we know that not every citizen in the United States sees it as something good or sees the value in prayer. In fact, if we were to go outside just and look in this neighborhood, we would see that there's many people that aren't here today that don't value prayer. A lot of people today think that prayer is bad and just something superstitious, something outdated, something archaic people did that we modern people who have science know is up to no good. And the interesting thing is, is that even we who are Christians can fall prey to this. Even those of us who identify with Christ can find ourselves saying, why in the world do I need to pray? I've got everything under control. God seems so distant. What's the value of prayer? But, in fact, what we'll see in Matthew 7, 7 to 11, is that prayer is one thing that marks Christians as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's easy to feel the weight of sin, doubt, and despair, and that can easily make us prayerless. But, like the president who issues the proclamation for the National Day of Prayer, calling the American citizens to pray to God, Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, calls his disciples to pray because we are citizens of his kingdom. So what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus tells us what prayer is and why we should do it. If I can put it in just a nutshell, if I can just say it in a brief word, Matthew 7, 7 to 11 is this. Christians should pray because we have a trustworthy and good father. We should pray because we have a trustworthy and good father. As citizens of the kingdom of God, King Jesus commands us as his citizens to pray to the Father who promises he will answer our prayer and gives us good things. So we're going to break this down in three points. First, we'll see that citizens should pray. Then we'll see that God is faithful to answer prayer. He keeps his word. He is trustworthy. And finally, we'll see that citizens have a good Father who knows how to give us good things. So citizens should pray. God is faithful to answer prayer. And citizens have a good father who gives good things. Now, when we turn our attention to the text, we'll unpack citizens should pray. In verse 7, Jesus says this. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, before we get any further into the text, we do need to say this. Knock, seek, ask. These aren't really three different ideas. They're just three different notions to get across Jesus' one point that we need to be praying. 
It's like when you give your kids three different reasons, three different explanations for the one thing that you want them to do. Maybe you want them to clean your room, so you give them three reasons. It needs to look good, it's not safe if it's not clean, and you have company coming over and you don't want to look bad. Same idea, the room needs to get cleaned. We need to pray. But what ask, seek, and knock do tell us, the fact that Jesus says ask, seek, and knock, means that we should be persistent in our prayer. Now, notice this. Ask, seek, and knock. Those are commands. They're imperatives. Jesus is commanding us to pray. He's not saying here, he's not saying, well, you can pray if you sometimes feel like you're in trouble or you're worried or you're stressed or maybe you don't know whether you want to go here for vacation or you want to go there. Maybe you wanted Wawa for lunch or maybe you wanted Subway. So pray and ask me and I'll help you. Or you can pray if you feel distant from God or if you feel close. No, there's nothing conditional in this. He's just saying, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus isn't saying anything conditional. He's not saying, you can ask if you want, and if you do, then you'll get it. Or if you want to seek, then you'll find. Or if you feel like knocking, that door will be opened. No. It's easy for us to understand this passage in that light. It's easy for us to just take it as some kind of pithy saying or a proverb that we can remember in our time of need. But what that does is it misses the force of what Jesus is saying. These are commands. How many times have you heard your kids say this? You're not the boss of me. And how many times have you thought to yourself, I so wish I could say that to my boss and not get fired? Let's be honest. We don't like being told what to do. So who is Jesus here to tell us to pray? Well, when we consider that he's the king of this kingdom, he has every right in the world to tell that. And we'll see later that this is a very good thing for us. So if you're a Christian, you need to pray. You need to pray. In fact, you must pray. It marks you as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus commands his disciples to pray. However, it might sound like this is just another law, another command that Jesus is putting on us to give us an extra burden to weigh us down. What's the value in another law that we can't keep? But I think we need to think of it this way. This isn't another law to put us down, to show us how sinful we are. It's a gracious gift to us. Can you imagine being a subject in a king in the uh, Middle Ages and having your king tell you, come tell me if you need anything. Commanding you, come tell me your needs and I'll give you what you need. Now, Joe did a great job explaining that this morning in the kids' sermon. As parents, you tell your kids, come to me, tell me what you need. In fact, you would be upset if your kids didn't tell you what you need. I would even go as far to say this, that you take delight in commanding your kids to tell you what, what they need. You take delight in hearing them tell you what they need. So these aren't another command that, are, that is to put us down, to show us our sin, but these are reassuring words from Jesus. These are reassuring words because the king of the universe wants us, who are sinful and broken people, to tell him everything that we need. So part of what it means to be a citizen of Jesus' kingdom is to pray for and about everything. We've seen that these are commands, so on the flip side of it, if we're not praying, we are being disobedient to Jesus. What we do when we don't pray, when prayerlessness characterizes our lives, is we're turning our back on God who has so warmly and welcomely invited us to pray. 
We say, it's, it's okay, God, I got this. I, I'm good enough on my own. I don't need any help. But if Jesus has already brought the kingdom of God here and has told us to pray, how ridiculous does that sound? How ridiculous is it when we go days, weeks, months even without praying? When we say, it's okay, God, don't worry about me. I'm fine on my own. I've done, good on, I've done well on my own so far. I don't need you. What we're doing is we're scorning, we're rejecting the good father who has given us this invitation and who will give us the good things that we need. So what we do when we go prayerless is that we're participating and we really are doing fully the sin of pride and we're doing what is right in our own eyes instead of what God has told us to do. Prayer ultimately shows our dependence upon God. We recognize our need for help in prayer. We recognize our utter helplessness. And when we do that, we are being obedient to the command of Jesus. When we don't do that, we are turning our back on the God who has given us all things, even his son, to die for us on the cross. So let's think about it this way. Let's say you've just finished building a house. I know in our GCM, uh, Robin and Anita just finished building a house, and I remember the excitement that they had as that was being built. They were living with, their, uh, with Anita's parents or Anita's uncle, and, I mean, can you imagine just the kids, their family? It's just a, a mess of things going on. So they were so excited to finally move into their new house. Uh, my parents built a house before I was born, and they still have pictures today that they like to take out and look at. And it's because when you go and you look, see the construction site and you see the foundation being built, you see the frame going up, and you see the siding put up, it builds excitement. The things that you've been spending your time, money, and energy on is finally coming to fruition. So finally, the move-in day gets here. The movers have put everything inside. Your house looks like an Ikea display with all the new furniture you've just bought and assembled. You've got your big screen TV up in the basement ready to watch the Eagles game. But let's say you needed to do some gardening outside. You had to do some landscaping work. You get some mud on your boots, some dirt on your pants. And you don't want to go inside because who wants to track mud in a brand new house? Who wants to get dirt all over everything? Who wants to use the house for what you actually built it for? You have a laundry room and a shower that you can clean up with. But you don't want to take it inside because you don't want to mess up this nice, good thing that you've just done. So you decide, I'll just live in a tent outside. The rest of the family can stay inside. I'll just live in the front yard. Now, I would imagine after a few days, your neighbors would realize that's not just a novel thing you're doing with your kids to camp out, but that you are really the crazy guy down the street that they're saying, have you met the new weird guy? Doesn't that just sound ridiculous? But I would tell you, that's what we're doing when we're prayerless. We're living outside this house of prayer, this good thing that God has given us, and we're living in a tent in our yard, looking at the house, rather than living in the house and using it for its purpose. So, what we need to do as citizens is we need to repent of our prayerlessness. This week I was so convicted of my own prayerlessness. Uh, just the times that I can go without getting on my knees before God and telling Him my needs, confessing my sin. So I hope that you will join with me in repenting of what we have, what we have neglected to do. Because prayer shows our obedience to God. It shows our reliance upon Him. It's not empty. And when we lift our voices to God in prayer, we're showing that we recognize we have a close communion, a close fellowship with the creator and ruler of the universe. So as citizens, we should pray. Now, if we turn to verse 8, we get to our second point. We see that God is faithful to answer prayer. 
That can be a hard word to hear. But verse 8 says this. It says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and for the one who knocks it will be opened. This verse tells us that the reason we can pray is because God will answer prayer. Jesus has just told his disciples to ask, seek, and knock, to be persistent in their prayer, and then he reassures them that this asking, this seeking, this knocking will be answered. It's as simple as that. Notice that. There's no bones about it. There's no magical formula they have to say. There's no dance they have to do. There's no amount of uh, work that they need to do in order to merit God answering their prayer. They're simply told to pray because God will answer their prayer. Do you hear the certainty of that? Do you hear that Jesus is giving us a reassuring word? Jesus isn't saying, well, if you do this thing, then I'll answer your prayer. Or if I know that you love me just this much, then I'll answer it. Or if you have just this much faith, you can know that your prayers will be answered. No, there's none of that here. Hear that. There's no amount of our faith, there's no amount of love for God that we could have that determines whether or not the God of the universe will hear our prayers. It's not about what is in us or how we feel or what we think about God on that particular day that determines whether or not God will answer our prayer. God is a God who always keeps his word. He is always faithful and true to his promises. If we just do a brief look at throughout all of scripture, we see that this is the God who has always kept his word. For instance, you may remember Abraham. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And Paul tells us that the, indeed they are and that those of us in Christ are his sons today. You may remember that God promised the Israelites he would lead them out of Egypt from slavery and oppression into the promised land, a land of milk and honey. And he did that. He promised David that his throne would be eternal. And in Christ, it is. If we were to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 3, right after man had just sinned, God promises Eve that her offspring will crush the head of the serpent who has just deceived them. And in Christ, that is fulfilled. So we see that God, all through his word, has kept his promise. So we should be reassured that as his citizens, we can pray because... God keeps his word. Consider this. This really spoke to me this week and got to me. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This him is none other than Jesus himself. So hear it this way. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Ultimately, all of God's promises, every word he's given to his people, every prophecy in the Old Testament, the purpose of the world itself finds its fulfillment at the center of everything in Jesus. So if God wouldn't spare his own son for us, who was God himself, the second person of the Trinity, if he wouldn't even spare Jesus, then how much more will he answer our prayers? If in Jesus all the promises of God have their yes, then in Jesus... All of our prayers are heard by the Father. Now there's also a flip side to these promises of God, and it reflects on us. God's promises are sure and true, and he always follows through on them, but 
We easily struggle to believe this. I struggle to believe this. I know you struggle to believe this too. I was thinking about it this week, and I realized that a lot of times my prayers are characterized not by the promises God has made to me, but rather the promises that I try to make to God. They sound something like, God, I'll promise I never do this thing again if you just give me this thing. Or, I'll go and do that if you just let me do this one thing, God. We can often find ourselves making these little deals, these promises to God. But really all we're doing is playing games, bartering or haggling with the one who has promised us. A lot of times we think we can earn God's blessing by doing that. But you know what? That's not the gospel. And if the gospel shapes everything that we do, then it shapes the way that we pray. The gospel is based on what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. So that's not how we should pray. The assurance for our answered prayers, just like our salvation, comes from outside of us, from God himself. We are told in verse 7 to ask, seek, and knock. And in light of this, it means we aren't to barter or haggle or make empty promises to God. When we try to play these games with God and earn his favor, we're doing nothing other than turning him into a pagan idol to something less than he is. And we diminish his glory because of that. We're making little of the creator of the universe. So when we, deal, when we make these little deals with God, we tend to make more of ourselves and less of him. Rather than us decreasing and God increasing, we like to think of ourselves as increasing and God decreasing. Here's something that might help you think about it. One summer, I was about 15 years old, so a few years ago. <laughs> Not too far removed from it, I guess. My dad wanted to build this shed that we could put a new lawnmower he got in. Uh, growing up in Virginia, we had a decent-sized yard, so he got a nice lawnmower. He wanted to house it, keep it for a long time. Now, you should know my dad's a pretty handy guy. He remodeled several rooms of our house. Uh, he even redid our basement on his own one time, which, I, which to, still today is amazing to me. Now, he had to work during the day, so we were just going to wait till it got cooler in the evening. He got home from work. We were going to build the framing to the shed on this day. I had other plans I wanted to do that night, so I was kind of bummed. So I figured, well, I'm at home. It's summer. I'm off from school. I'll, I'll go ahead and start on it. Maybe when he gets home, he'll see it's finished, and he'll be happy. I can go and do whatever I wanted to do that night. So he leaves, and I start getting to work. I measure out things the best I could. I start sawing, and I hammer. And after a few hours, it, it looked done to me. It looked like there was going to be a shed eventually. Well, Dad gets home. He pulls into the driveway, and... I mean, he smiled. He was happy that I did some work while he was gone. He saw the intention behind it, but when he got there, he walked right up to it, and all he did was just a little tap, and the whole thing fell over. I could tell that he knew that the work wasn't actually done. So I learned that it takes a little bit of knowledge of knowing what to do rather than just knowing how to hammer some nails and cut some wood. My dad knew how to do the work. He had done it before. But I was certain that I could do it without any of that knowledge. Instead of waiting to work with the person who knew how to do it, who had the skills necessary, I tried to do it on my own. Why not? But we ended up, instead of having a shed, we ended up with a pile of poorly cut, poorly nailed wood that was now just good for burning. So when we place our own knowledge, when we place our own promises above those of God himself, this is exactly what you're doing. 
You're acting like 15-year-old Brett trying to build a shed. And you don't want to do that, trust me. You don't want the framing of your prayer life, which is the promises of God, to collapse on you because you've instead made the framing your own promises. We easily think that our promises to God and our ability to follow through on those promises are what get our prayers answered. But that's simply not the case. Hear this. God answers our prayer because he always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word. Our God is faithful to answer our prayer. So our third point is this. Citizens have a good father who gives good things. Verses 9 to 11 say this. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven know how to give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus here uses an argument that's classified as the lesser to the greater. Remember that he's speaking to his disciples, those who are the children of God. So this argument of lesser to the greater goes like this. Earthly fathers, the lesser, they're lesser because they're sinners. He even calls them evil. They know how to give good things to their children. So it's not too hard to imagine that the heavenly father who is up here, who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly good, that he knows how to give good things. God is a good father who knows how to give good things to his children. So we who identify as his children, because of faith in Christ, can ask him for things in prayer. This is the foundation for our prayer life. We can pray to God because we are his children. We can pray to God because we are his children. No one else gets that privilege. No one else can approach the God of the universe except those who are his children. Thank God for it. Now, I'm not a father yet, but it's not too hard to imagine what it's like to have kids at Seven Mile Road Church. <laughs> we may not be the most obedient people, but I do have to applaud you for taking the command to be fruitful and multiply seriously. <laughs> Every time we gather, there are kids everywhere. And one thing I've noticed about these kids is that they love to be around their parents. They really do love to be around you. That's why they cry when you drop them off at Sunday school. There's just a deep level of intimacy there that doesn't seem to exist in any other human relationship. But I have noticed one other thing about your kids, and please don't hate me for saying this, because I've heard some of you say it. <laughs> I do love your kids, and I know you love them too. Your kids are awfully needy. They really can't do much of anything on their own. Now, for the 0.1% of you who might not think your kids are needy, just wait till they come back from Sunday school after, after communion. They're going to say... Can you pick me up? Can you hold me? Can you look at my coloring sheet? Can you get me food? They're going to ask you for something. They're going to show you their need. But I would say this. Would you have it any other way? As parents, would you have it any other way than knowing that your kids can freely ask you for those things? The fact that they can come running to you and freely ask you shows that they know you love them and that there's a freedom there to ask you for anything. Your kids know you care for them. They know you'll provide for them. They know because of that they can ask you. And I would even say that you take delight in hearing your kids ask you for things. So as God's children, 
just like the comparison's already been made by Jesus from earthly fathers to our heavenly fathers. Just like earthly fathers love to hear their kids asking for, for things, our heavenly father loves to hear us ask for things. Now, some of you may know this too. This has been my experience. Problems between a parent and a child can develop in a teenage years. Most of us have probably been there. Puberty sets in. You begin to feel like a real man or a real woman. And you think that you can do things on your own, that your parents are just there to get in the way. They've got some silly rules you've got to follow. They're just people in the way of what you want to do. And that was me as a teenager. Remember that shed falling over? I was 15, and I thought I knew how to do everything. I knew how to hammer some nails and cut some wood. But when I think back to my teenage years, and especially that time, it was because I thought I knew better than my dad that I began building. And if I finished the shed before he got home, it meant that I would get his approval, but I would also give him a little jab showing I didn't need him anymore. But when he got home and he saw all the wood was ruined and most of the nails were gone, I didn't get his approval. In fact, you can imagine he wasn't too happy at all because I meant another trip to Lowe's and ultimately meant more money coming out of his pocket. It was my disobedience. It was my sin, my pride. Because I thought I knew better, that put those bad consequences on our relationship. It seems like all the trouble I've ever had with my parents was because of my own teenagerness and really nothing on their part. And when we reflect on prayer, I think this is the problem that we see. Most of us think that we've hit the teenage stage in our spirituality. We think we've got it all figured out. Maybe now we've got a job, we've got a spouse, we're getting married, we're settling down, got some kids. Things are, things are in control, things are going well. And ultimately, whether we're conscious of it or not, we think that it's because of our efforts, it's because of what we've done that has put us there. But what can this thinking lead us to? Just like my teenage relationship with my dad, where I drove a wedge between us because I thought I knew better than him, when we hit this spiritual teenageness, we drive a wedge between the Father and ourselves. And we try to act under our own desires, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, rather than the wisdom of God who created all things, rather than the love of our Father in heaven. So our prayerlessness is a sign that we are thinking much of ourselves, but little of God. Instead of acting like children and bringing all things to him in prayer, our lack of prayer shows us that we are trying to act like God's teenagers who have it all figured out but still might need to ask him to borrow the car sometimes and maybe for some extra cash. Looking back, I know my parents were sad when they realized I began to act like this. And I would submit to you that in the same way, when we go prayerless, we are forfeiting, we are giving up great intimacy with the triune great and almighty God of the universe. When we try to act like his spiritual teenagers rather than his spiritual children, that's what we're doing. Now consider this too. There's one other part of this. Kids will ask for anything. Anything. Part of being a child means growing up in wisdom and knowledge, being able to determine right from wrong, good from bad, and hopefully with your guidance they do that. But kids often have a hard time understanding what it is exactly that they need. And that's where you come in as parents, to, to guide them in that way. Even though your kid may ask for a bad thing, you know as a parent you can't give it to them just because they asked. Part of being a good parent means knowing what your kid needs, means knowing what your child needs, good or bad. And this is exactly what our Heavenly Father does with us. We can pray and ask for anything from our God in heaven, from our Father in heaven, 
But we can also know that he gives us good things and knows what is best for us, even when we don't. Augustine, a 5th century pastor and theologian, said this. He said, For what would he not now give to his sons when they ask? When he has already granted this very thing, namely, that they might be sons. In other words, Augustine says this, God has already made us who were his enemies. He has made us into his children. This is already the greatest thing that he could give us. And if he has done this greatest thing for us already in Jesus, then will he surely not answer our prayers as his children? Christ died to make us God's children, which is the ultimate gift to us. Will God then not give his children good things to those who ask? Now, some people argue that these verses teach a type of name it and claim it prayer life or theology. God is just up there waiting for you to say what you need, tell him what you want. He's got it ready for you. And the problem is you don't have what you want because you're not asking or you don't have enough faith. The problem is your lack of faith, they say. God's willing to answer, but you need to believe just a certain amount to get what you want. That's garbage. That is rubbish. The God that works that way is no God at all. Our God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul calls the Father of glory, is a good Father who knows what we need and gives us what we need. We're free to ask Him for anything because He is our Father, but we can also trust that whatever we get, whatever comes to pass, whatever happens to us, is because He is a good Father who knows what we need better than we do. How reassuring is it to know that when our prayers seem to be going unanswered, when things are go- seem to be going so wrong, when life is so difficult, to know that the plan of God is perfect, we would all say that, but to know also that it's a personal plan, it's a fatherly plan, meaning that the plans that God has are for his children and it is for our good. Financial hardships, sickness, death of a loved one, facing death yourself, all of those things may come when our prayers are filled with requests for health, prosperity, fullness of life. But we can rest knowing that our hope and faith is found in God who sent his son to become like us, to come down from heaven and become a man, to suffer, to bear our iniquities, to bear our sins, and to die for us. If you're struggling with your prayer life and it's because you think God isn't answering, he's never answered your prayers, or life is just too difficult and prayer is useless, know this. Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, the night before he was killed, prayed in the garden that the cup of suffering that he was about to have have happen would be removed. You know what happened? It wasn't. Jesus was sweating blood because of the anguish of what he was about to experience. But he still experienced it. But because he was obedient, even obedient unto death, his death gives us access to the Father. It was for our sakes that the Father orchestrated this plan of salvation through his Son, who suffered like us and died the death that we all deserved. So we should take comfort knowing that God himself, that Jesus became like us, suffered like us, went through the same struggles that we went through, so that one day, when he comes again, he will restore us 
So as we close, here's what we need to hear, what we need to take to heart. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we should pray. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we should pray because we have a trustworthy and good father. We should pray because Jesus commands it. We should pray because God answers prayer. And we should pray because we can pray because we are the children of God. Let's pray.